1: Welcome to the Lore of Us podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to a fungal apocalypse. I'm John.
2: And I'm David. And this is our season wrap-up podcast for season one of HBO's original series, The Last of Us.
1: We got a truckload of feedback. So after the intro, we're going to get right into wrapping up the season. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about our podcasting schedule for the rest of March.
2: The T-L-O-U at thelorehounds.com email will stay active so it's ready to go for Season 2. Otherwise, if you've got more to say, join us on the Lorehounds Discord server. Link in the show notes below and on our website, thelorehounds.com.
1: Also, a heads up about our Patreon. We've got one and it's a very important part of our ability to produce all the different projects and shows we're working on. If it works for you, please consider subscribing today at patreon.com slash thelorehounds.
2: For as little as 3 bucks a month, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, our entire catalog. You get early access uh, to new podcasts when we get them out, and occasional post-credit bloopers, and we've got a few more perks in the pipeline, so stay tuned. Lastly,
1: we'd like to ask that if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.
2: You guys have been doing a great job, and we're loving all the reviews. Keep them coming. Thank you so much.
1: Ratings and reviews help us show up. When people search for podcasts, and the more people who find us, the more we can keep making podcasts. So if you have a moment in your day, we'd really appreciate it. So, David, we've come to the end of our journey. We have. Of season one of The Last of Us. Where's your head at?
2: Uh, I'm happy and I'm sad. Um, And I'm relieved (laughs) because this was a, a pretty hefty show to be doing podcasting on. But I'm really happy with the quality that we saw. I'm happy with our uh, production for you know everything that we did i mean it really stretched us as podcasters i'm super impressed with our listeners uh, the feedback that we got this round is a plus yeah we got a ton of it and it's all very impassioned and considerate and people laying out their arguments really well like you guys did a really good job i'm like really impressed <laughs> by <laughs> what we got so you know, last night I rewatched uh, episode nine to, you know, have it fresh in my mind going in for this. I then watched the making of documentary and like, wow, that was a real undertaking making this season of television. It's just so impressive. Um, and it's a nice little documentary. It was about half an hour or so. Oh, and, okay. Uh, really, That's not too bad. No, and it went into the special effects and the physical and practical effects and the costuming and um, all of that behind-the-scenes stuff. They didn't really get into script or story stuff, um, but it was just really cool to see uh, Druckman and uh, Mason talking about the creation. You know, and they obviously they chit chat with the stars and heads of different departments, and it was just really cool to see how they went around how, how they went about doing some of the. Technical work, um, as well as some of the decisions that they had to make in the middle of production to go, oh, okay, um, the bloater looks great. We've got a guy in a full body suit, but it's just not kind of working. He's not big enough and he's not moving fast enough. So let's make him CGI. Okay, cool. Good thing we made a full body suit because now we can just model that thing and, you know, scale it up a little bit bigger and and uh use his motion as a basis. Like so for every challenge that they ran into, it it feels like they judo flipped everything and because they're just so creative and so experienced, they didn't have any major, I mean, who knows, but you know, the documentary is supposed to make me feel good about it. And I feel good about it. I feel good about the production and the creative, the creativity that went into the production.
1: Right. Very cool. I've got to check that out soon.
2: Yeah. The, um, a few other quick thoughts, because a lot of our feedback is really about the ending of this. So yeah. before we just get locked into that, I did want to like call out the music and the editing on the show. They were just A+. I just felt all the music did a lot of work across the entire season to, to stitch things together, and the editing was brilliant. And we didn't get locked into a single style of editing. I mean, right. every episode was told the way that they felt like it needed to be told. And so they used whatever techniques and, and um, flourishes and, you know, whether it was a cold open or not, whatever. What, it, what was it that they needed to tell the story? They deployed it. And I think they deployed all of that very judiciously. So that was great. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I heard it's got really strong ratings, too, like millions of yeah. millions of user- viewers.
1: Although, they, I, I will tell you, the user ratings are sometimes getting review bombed because sure, there's yeah. some homophobia going around, especially uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. in this. So yeah, that's, that's the one negative I would say that you're seeing in the, in the audiences. But overall, I think a very positive reception, and especially from critics.
2: Yeah. And the viewership number sounded uh, extraordinary, like um, House yeah. of Dragon numbers. So
1: It beat House of the Dragon out. Really?
2: That's great. It did.
1: It did. And it had one fewer episode, too.
2: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, and we were episode lengths all over the place and different stories. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's very cool. Um, yeah. a, cut one minor criticism, and I don't know if you're on the same boat with me on this one, but I felt like we were short maybe one infected encounter, like maybe yeah. another museum-style scene or a small horde. You know, maybe when she was, you know, with the cannibals, and I guess in the game there was a, there was just a whole thing with David and the, the Silverlight community where they have to fight off a ton of them. But I yeah. just felt, or, or maybe at the hospital, the first hospital they were at, but I just felt like I was missing, like, one more encounter, whether it was a, a single or, like, three or four, you know, that, that would have really heightened the sense of danger that the infected were. I get it. like people are dangerous, got that, loved it all. I just feel like we needed a little bit more infected.
1: No, I totally agree. I mean, Uh I'm on record saying I think episode eight really needed that fight with David Uh because I think it would have shown why Ellie started to trust David, even though he's kind of a creep. right? And I I think that honestly, they were too cautious. They were too nervous Mm. about overusing action in this show. And they need to just let loose a little more. Now, I did see that in an interview Craig Mason said, yeah, there's going to be more infected next season. Okay. So I think that they are paying attention to that kind of criticism.
2: Sounds good. Um, and I think the last general comment that I have is that, episode, and this is not the capstone comment, because we're going to get into, we got a lot of feedback we got to get into. Um, and so we're going to take a, a, a lot apart. We're going to take the season apart a lot in, in our feedback. But one of the things, when I was looking over the season as a whole, just how remarkable episodes three, five, and seven were. Uh, they did uh-huh. amazing job of spanning the story, but also providing their own little encapsulated story. It's technically not, they're technically not bottle episodes. Bottle episodes has, is a particular thing, but people are using it in a, in a much more generic way now. Uh-huh. At least three and five, or three and seven were kind of you know bodily um, in, in that regard. But uh, three is with uh, Frank and Bill... Five was the back half of the Henry and um, Sam story. And Uh then seven was what was seven? Uh, That was left behind. Oh, right. With uh, Riley. Yeah, of course. So just really wonderful storytelling, really well done to encapsulate a lot of information in a tight episode that not only moved the whole story plot forward, but really dug us down deep into the history and background of individual characters, or even side characters, because we never see Frank Frank and Bill again. But yet, that has such an important tonal uh, vibration, cast, color cast, I don't know how you want to describe it, but like...
1: It's a fundamental part of Joel's character development and motivation development toward the finale.
2: Absolutely, and it was done with a character that was not even in the core of the plot,
1: <laughs> you know, right? And, or even in the game, really. Like right. Frank only shows up as a corpse in the game,
2: right? So, how brilliant was that? Like, I, I was just, I'm just really impressed with the the quality and level of the storytelling overall, and then those three uh, episodes in particular, right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I had a great time. This was something that I walked into with a lot of hope. And Mm -hmm. with a lot of apprehension, because I've been a gamer a long time, and I've seen a lot of gaming adaptations, and I've not been impressed before. Mm -hmm. I would say this is the first one where I've been genuinely impressed by the adaptation, especially one that was faithful. Because a lot of the time, you know, you'll see a property, we talk about this in Earthsea, you know, Studio Ghibli did an adaptation of Earthsea, and maybe it was a good movie, but it wasn't really true to the work, right? Right. But this is something where they finally made a show, or anything on screen, really. That was faithful to the game, but actually translated well. And part of that is this is a game that was made to be cinematic. This was a game that was already imitating film. And so it's easier to translate it back to film. It's sort of talking to each other, right? But also, I mean, these showrunners just, you know, one of them made the game and one of them was a huge fan of it. And you could tell that there was love in it, you know? I don't want to talk too much about it, but you hear The Witcher writers saying, you know, people didn't like the game. They didn't like the books on the staff. And you can feel that in the writing there. You could feel how there's sort of a, how can we, how can we be better than that attitude? Right. And I don't think that you saw that in this show. We saw, I love this thing. Is there anything that I could do to show that love Mm. By adding something with the writing. Not taking it away, but adding something. Right. And I think almost every change was additive in the show. Right. Every time they got rid of an encounter with the infected or uh some kind of raiders or anything like that, and they replaced it with character drama, I was riveted. I was thrilled and I was captivated by the character moments we were getting. And and I will say that except for when they took out the infected with David, but we've already hashed
2: that out right. on that episode. Right. You know, as, an, as the non-game player of our duo, I never felt the adaptation. I mean, I could see a couple of scenes here or there where, oh yeah, I could see how that would work in a game, but I never felt like I was being given an adaptation. And all of the changes which you were highlighting and, and letting us know on the podcast all seemed to make sense to me as, as the casual viewer. And so, mm-hmm. like, that is an extraordinary thing to satisfy both you... Who loves this game and loves this property, and me coming to it like you know, wide eyed and, and fresh and as a, as a daisy in the spring rain. I, that's a weird metaphor, but anyway, just coming to it fresh. <laughs> um, and that we're both walking away, scratching our heads, going, Wow, that was really great. That is a triumph,
1: yeah, yeah, to appeal to. The person who does not know the source material and the person who knows the source material is something that, as Rings of Power will tell you, is very <laughs> yes. difficult to do. But, you know, speaking of Rings of Power, I think that's something that they both did well mm-hmm. was they put things in the background for the person who knows the material yes. that would not bother you if you, and they, you know, would not be jarring to you if you didn't know the materials. For example, Rings of Power had statues of the Valar in Numenor, mm-hmm. whereas here we had the, the, picture referencing ish. That was something where I was reminded of something that I thought was beautiful in the game and you didn't have to be bothered by an aside that didn't really have relevance to the main story.
2: Right. Right. And that to be able to to deliver that to you and to keep me happy and and engaged in the story and both of us walking away, that is rarely I, I can't I don't know. When when else have we seen this at this level? So you know, regardless of whether you, as a person who is coming to the show, whether you enjoyed watching it or not, like did it give you joy and did you have fun or whatever, was it a good experience? All of those things. Regardless, the fact that for this industry to be able to deliver this product to us and satisfy both these very demanding audiences, that's uh, that's extraordinary.
1: I just want Craig Mizzen to produce all my favorite shows now.
2: <laughs> all my Director favorite dramas, sure. at least. Maybe not right. the comedies. Well, when, when is he going to get a Star Wars movie? That's the question.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's not go into Star Wars movies right now. No. So feedback time. And here's a reminder. I mentioned this last week, but my wife, uh, Mrs. Lorehound, first name Maya, she's going to be joining me at the end of this podcast to talk spoilers for the last of us part two and we got i think one piece of feedback for that we're going to have a lot of fun with it we're going to talk production updates too but definitely don't listen to that if you haven't played the second game because we are going to talk massive spoilers and that season will not be as good for you if you know so yeah stick around for that but for now we have a ton of feedback so if we missed your email we apologize however we have so much that this is going to take us a while to get through anyway so let's have fun with it david
2: Yeah. Sounds good. Um, we, I think you went through a a lot of the feedback to make sure that we didn't, I didn't get accidentally spoiled for season two. So thank you for doing that. And you kind of put us together in three big batches. One is general thoughts. And then we have the case, uh, against Joe Miller, Joel Miller, and then the case for Joel Miller. And a lot of this hinges on my take, From last week, that Joel is a kind of monster, and we've got a lot of people, uh, mostly people, not agreeing with my take, and a couple of of supporters there. But I think um, I think that's the crux of the the show and the season, right? Was boiling it all down to what were, how do we how do we look at Joel's actions? How do we look at the actions of the Fireflies, and how do we weigh that out? Uh, How do we weigh out the ethics and the morality of it all? I think no matter where you come down on, I, I feel like what the showrunners wanted us to do was to engage passionately in the material. And I think Agreed. that's what we've got here is a really vigorous, passionate uh, uh, conversation. And it makes it fun for us. Like It's been a really fun time scanning through all these emails and, and uh, taking on people's arguments and, and considering po- thoughts that I, I hadn't thought before. So anyway... I think we should just get to it.
1: Absolutely, much more about the dialogue than it is the answer. I don't think there is a right answer. At least that's not the intention of the game makers and showrunners. So, right, let's do the general thoughts first, so that we keep it light before we get into the trial of Joel Miller. <laughs> Drunkill on the Discord says, "Listening to the pod now at work." The behind-the-scenes video shows how they did the Ellie falling from the horse shot—a fake horse on a track with a stunt double on top of the horse, hits the end of the track, and the rider goes off the front. So the horse falling would be CGI, but the tumble was real for the stunt double.
2: That's cool.
1: So I, I guess we didn't risk any horse safety here, but we did risk human safety. So as long as we right. keep it to the humans.
2: <laughs> I think that's even more cool, uh, cooler uh, than just doing a full CGI thing that they actually had a stunt double go flying off of a physical object at that height and velocity just adds to that uh, realism, that sense of realism. Um, and it was just cut so well together that we didn't even see it. Uh, it's, again, kudos to the creative and uh, technical teams on this show.
1: Did you see that image that was going around where somebody paused at just the right moment for you to see the plastic horse?
2: No. <laughs>
1: it's, it's really bad. It's the Starbucks cup for this, you know? It's just like a stupid moment. Oh, right. Because, you know, with a show this big, you're not going to catch every little tiny shot. Sure. And so somebody's going to find it if it's there. And, and right. I think people are more laughing about it than angry about right. it, you know?
2: That's good. Yeah, no, I, I, as I was sort of still continuing my uh, monastic traditions of... Avoiding uh, consuming extra media, but I don't think it rose to the level of the Starbucks cup. That was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, turned, yeah, yeah. I think that hit. Well, because like that was right news. next to a main
1: character, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So
1: the the other one, the other error that they caught in the show in The Last of Us is there's a camera crew you can see on one of the landscape shots when they're walking towards Tommy's town, walking towards uh, okay. Jackson. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, just a just a little thing. Eh, they were like, yeah, cool. you know, they're, the zombies are shooting film now, right? Exactly. So figuring Dan B. writes in, and this seems to be about episode 8, so a little bit dated, but I think it's good to talk about it anyway. He begins, So I started listening to the pod. I'll wrap it up on my morning commute. But I gotta say, the opening criticism was a bit lost on me. I don't see how this town is portraying any kind of economic system or government. It's 100% a cult. If it was the point the creators were trying to make, I certainly didn't get that out of what we saw, and I think you'd have to take quite a leap to see that certainly didn't seem like they were going out of their way to make a political statement. You know, it's funny. I kind of agree with you as far as just seeing what's on screen. That's why I was almost taken aback when I heard Craig Mason on the podcast going like, yeah, you know, you see theocracies around the world not working. And you see, you know, I was like, how is that relevant? This is a, an apocalyptic cult.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: So I, I don't know. It was just a weird thing that jumped out to me on the podcast.
2: You know, I, during the whole show, as we were... You know, looking at Boston, Kansas City, uh, Jackson, uh, Silver Lake, um, you know, and then uh, you know various individuals that that they encountered on the road. The way that I was reading all of that stuff was: here is here are human beings responding to this existential crisis, and they're responding in different ways based on values and beliefs. And the one thing that I think is true is that no matter where we go as a species in a group, we are going to develop economies, right? And that is just, you know, um, Uh the production and trade of goods and services. Because, you know, like, oh, well, you can make bread and you can grow wheat. Okay, great. We've got something going on here. That's an economy. And then the other thing that we're going to do in living in groups, um, uh, everybody's going to have different opinions opinions about how to go about things. And so we're going to create politics, and we're going to create systems of governance to figure out how do we adjudicate the needs of the many within this, you know, uh, framework of we're all deciding to live together, and so for me, looking at the, the spectrum, of what they presented. It was just looking at, oh, okay, this is interesting. This is how this community decided to approach it. This is how mm-hmm. that community decided to approach it. And yeah, Silver, like 100% cult community based around religion, but there's still politics involved. There's still economy involved. We may not see it as such, but I, I kind of think that the, the showrunners were. Uh, making some commentary about different systems and different reactions to those. So that's the way I was, I was consuming all of this um, point of view on how different communities were responding to the crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that they were sort of trying to make a point, but I don't know. I, I kind of agree with Dan. It's not that... It's not that obvious if you just take it at the show face value. I mean, I was distracted by the fact that they were eating people, right. and so I wasn't really considering their system of economics too much.
2: Right. Well, and interestingly, if you think a little bit about it, too, like the, regardless of the uh, specific religion in question, setting that aside for a moment and just looking at the power dynamic there, there was one individual who is responsible for and was dictating to the group what and sure. how things were going to play out
1: it was at its core a patriarchy right that is yeah. that is the thing that you could most accurately define it as even putting religion aside
2: yeah and then you know like one of the little tells was when he sat down for dinner and they gave him a plate of food there was more food on his plate than it, anybody else had like he had a right. double you know or triple portion now regardless of whether he said, I always want more food than anybody else or not, the fact that the cooks, you know, were doing that, whether out of deference or implied fear, whatever, doesn't matter. The point is that there's a power imbalance there. And I think that's one of the things that they're pointing to. Whereas Jackson, we don't have a power imbalance. We have a, a very idealistic looking community. Right. So, right.
1: Yeah, everybody's going to the movies together. Everybody's getting their little snacks together. Everybody's got a coat to wear. Right. Yeah. So. Kathy from Ireland and our resident GP for the show wrote in with two emails. So here's a hybrid combo of what she wrote regarding the delivery and the baby. It was an easy delivery, to say (laughs) the least. (laughs) To say the least. But maybe you're so tense from stabbing a fungal zombie that you deliver a baby without realizing. Maybe. I really enjoyed that you guys said they used an actual newborn-ish for baby for the birth scene. I didn't say it in the previous email because I thought that I was being too pedantic, and it's, totally, it's a totally irrelevant bugbear of mine that these half-grown children are played off as newborns. You guys seem like you know this from experience, but they have a different cry, a very different cry uh, than older babies, and it just added a really primal element way to that give them hell Ellie scene, our innate reaction to that type of cry is just a lot stronger. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, you know, you see newborns in shows and usually they're like a three month
2: old. Right. Yeah. And, and seeing and hearing that little warbling cry and, you know, the, the baby with, you know, you know, freshly delivered, yeah, like I instantly snapped into like blanket, food, like what's going on? We got to make sure that this, you know, what's going on with the mother um, and that cry really activated that that parental thing in me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember being in audio school and they were telling you, you know, lower this frequency usually in voices because this is the frequency that Baby's newborn cries. baby cries are and you are <laughs> chemically programmed, you know, biologically programmed to feel stressed from that sound. Right fun times regarding cordyceps immunity she prefaces her comments by reminding us that in the realm of tv science the whole thing didn't seem too off base but she continues i feel like listening to you guys and watching rewatching the episode they seemed like they were saying she had cordyceps in her as a baby and it traveled to her brain and set up shop there hence immune i think a tiny inoculation a la vaccine would make more sense if the cordyceps was in her as a baby, why wouldn't she just turn? It seems the tiniest exposure is enough, so saying that she was exposed via the barrier of the placenta would make more sense to me on a very basic level, but I'm far from an immunologist slash microbiologist. I did go on an internet deep dive of how cordyceps travels in ants, as in, is it blood or lymphatics or nerves, and I couldn't easily find out. It seems to just ten- penetrate their exoskeleton and then spread through all tissues like muscles and peripheral nerves. But I did think it was interesting that the one place it doesn't go in ants is the brain. And this was the one thing the Firefly surgeon wanted to yank out of her.
2: Yeah, this is interesting. I, don't, um, I didn't do any more uh, fungal research myself, but I, doesn't it go to, doesn't cordyceps go to the brain stem and leave the brain intact? So it's controlling the motor functions that re- leaving whatever else is going on in the brain alone.
1: Well, that sounds even more terrifying because that sounds like you definitely have awareness.
2: Yes. <laughs> and you don't. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. I think it's like driving you like a mecca, right? You know, it's, it's sort of puppeteering you through things. Um, but I think it is interesting that the Firefly doctor did want to yank out her brain, and I think we're definitely going to get into a bunch of that later on. Um, but yeah, you know, and what did the blood brain or the blood uh, barrier placenta thing have to do with it? I, you know, I'm fine with not knowing the specifics for the show, uh, just that she had some sort of minor exposure that drove that immunity question. It's, it's good enough for me for TB science.
1: Yeah, and I mean, people wrote articles about could cordyceps really go to humans? Right, and the general consensus was no, it couldn't. It would, you know, even if it survived temperatures, it grows so slowly that as as a being as large as a human, it would be impossible to really infect you Mm. that quickly and not have antifungals be an option. So, yeah, I mean, I think we just have to accept TV science on this.
2: Yeah, exactly. Kathy
1: closes with, I've loved the series and the episode and the parallel with Sarah in his arms in episode one and Ellie in this, but this time he saves her and he doesn't fail. I am a bit heartbroken that their relationship seems fractured now. She doesn't seem to believe him and I don't know how I'll wait until next season to find out what happens when the next game is right there. Looking forward to following on with another series with you guys. Roll on season two, Kathy.
2: Kathy, thank you so much for writing in. I really love having a expert medical person to consult with. And uh, yeah, your emails are a ton of fun. And um, yeah, thanks for writing in all the way from Ireland. Gee, we've had uh, an Italian correspondent. We've now got an Irish doctor uh, correspondent. So this is fun. Yeah, it really adds to our- The lorehounds
1: really, worldwide.
2: That's right. It really adds to our community. So thank you, Kathy. It's been a pleasure um, uh, trading emails with you.
1: David M. writes in via a Patreon post, I'd like to submit a piece of feedback for the season wrap-up show. Well, more of a question, really. In the episode 9 cast, John said that this was the best show he's seen since Breaking Bad. And David said it was like an 11 on setting a new industry standard for television. And I'm interested to hear you guys elaborate more on that. Like, obviously, all this stuff is objective. But I was struck by both of those statements. I mean, don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed the season and the character work uh, from all was outstanding. I thought it was well crafted and the things in the early goings paid off and came back around in the end was really impressive. The okay line is also just a fantastic ending. But I can think of several shows in recent years that I think do all of those same things equally well or better, at least in my opinion. So I was interested to hear you guys talk more about what puts this show slash story over the top for you. I hope I'm not coming off salty or anything. I'm just genuinely curious is all. This is a story that knocked me out 10 years ago, especially the okay line, but I'm also not as enamored with it as I once was. And while I was really impressed with this adaptation, I couldn't help but wish they had done more with it like they did Jakarta or Bill and Frank and slowed down a bit in the back half of the season. And now I got to ask one more question. We all know how John feels, but David, are you putting The Last of Us over and or?
2: <laughs> the way my idiosyncratic uh, ranking works, The uh, Last of Us is actually going to come in just below Andor because I've got a three-part uh, ranking, if you remember from the second breakfast from December. And uh-huh. we'll cover it all again uh, this December when we release our, our uh, second breakfast, which will have our, our year in wrap-up. Um, but I've got like a classification, is it S tier, or is it A tier, which is just excellent, or, you know, I forget all of the rankings, B tier, which is sort of fun and enjoyable, but not, you know, like Kaleidoscope was a, like a, I think a B or a C. So there's that, which just sort of does major groupings. So obviously, Last of Us is going to be in the S tier. Um, then there's a 1 to 10 scale, which is for everything from production, script, um, acting, you know, uh, uh, editing, sound, all of that kind of stuff. And then there's a subjective entertainment value score that I give it that's a 1 to 5. Did I have fun watching it? Was it just okay? And, um, or, or was it like painful to watch? Um, and this is gonna rank a three on my enjoyment scale, where Andor ranked a five on my okay. enjoyment scale because I loved I love spy thrillers, I love, you know, space science fiction, action stuff. So I loved all that aspect of Star Wars with a good spy thriller and a knockout cast and script. Well this is a knockout cast and script. There was some stuff in the show that was difficult to watch and less enjoyable, like I, I'm not knocking the show, just like violence against children, sexual assaults, you know, all the, the gaslighting that David was doing, the torture that Joel was doing, all of that kind of stuff. Right. It was all part of the story and I have no problem with it. But if I were to sit down and go, oh, do I re- want to rewatch Andor back to back? Do I want to binge Andor or do I want to binge Last of Us? I'll probably binge Andor because it's more fun, pew pew, you know, and, and spy stuff. Whereas like sure. seeing Joel pop somebody's kneecap you know, out of of place is a little bit difficult to watch. You know, I don't know how many... You've said you've replayed the game a couple of times. But I mean, it's such a heavy impact. Like, it's not something, oh, hey, let me go and have fun with Ellie and Joel, right? It's a a little bit more of a serious endeavor, a heavier lift.
1: Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I only play it once every few years. And that's why, is because Mm -hmm. it's heavy. Yeah. Although... I was in a similar place to you with Andor where after the episodes, I was almost always hitting replay right Mm -hmm. away or doing it the next day or something like that. If we weren't recording and yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a matter of, of preference, right? Because, you know, I would say that there's a lot in breaking bad. That's really hard to watch. Sure. And I still think that that's one of the best, you know, character development shows of all time. Right. And I think that what that show and this show do really well is that they lead you down the path of rooting for the person you're following, rooting for the main character, and then they rip that rug out from underneath you? Mm-hmm. But it makes total sense when you get there.
2: Right. Yep.
1: I think that that is what they both share, and why I wanted to compare it to Breaking Bad, and why I think that it's it's the best show that I've seen since Breaking Bad.
2: Uh, well, I was going to say on my scale for the industry score, it's a one to ten, but I haven't. It does go. The dial does go to eleven. And shows that get an 11 are shows that break the mold in some way. Andor broke the mold on the Star Wars box, right? Oh, we're going to model everything on the 77 movie, and we're going to you know, stick to this canon stuff or whatever. And, and Andor just completely broke away from that while still being Star Wars, but it just gave us a whole different tone and vibe. So that, right. to me indicated that, uh, that it was doing something beyond uh, its genre limitations. So it, it pushed the industry in some direction, some into, into new territory. And we even saw it on The Mandalorian the other day, where they were totally doing Andor-esque stuff in it uh, in episode three. This show is going to get an 11 from me because it is an adaptation Now, obviously, I haven't played the game, but I'm relying on you and on everyone, on all the other game players. I am an authority. Yes. Uh, Who are telling me that this is an outstanding adaptation. And so when I go, oh, that's an adaptation, it has just pushed storytelling and the industry's capability of doing adaptations into new territory. Therefore, for me, it gets an 11 because not only was all the production excellent and the script and the actors, but it broke new ground for where uh, television storytelling can go and the kinds of stories that it can tell. It can take source material. It's been proven that they can take a video game and adapt it at a high, excellent level. So for me, that deserves an 11.
1: Well, and I mean, you you also mentioned it's a video game adaptation, which is something that has always been done poorly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. We walked in... Ready to grade it on a curve. I mm-hmm. mean, I guess, you know, we were still going to critique it, but this is something that didn't need to be graded on a curve. And when you do grade it on that curve, it just eliminates the scale entirely. It's just in a, <laughs> in a league above every other video exactly. game adaptation that came before. Exactly. And so, yeah, I agree. It's, it's something that will challenge people in the same way andor challenged Star Wars yeah. writers to do better. This challenges adap- adapt- adaptations of video games to be
2: better. And like, um, uh, Breaking Bad challenged all uh, cable, you know, produced dramas, right? And, and character stories. And Breaking Bad or um, uh, Better Call Saul uh, broke ground because it was actually able to do a prequel that um, delivered on the promise of its uh, predecessor, right? So you know those kinds of shows that give us new horizons and new territory. We can go, oh yeah, it can be done. Here are examples. That for me is a, a what. that's why something gets an 11.
1: Right. You know, early seasons of Game of Thrones. It's, it's yeah. not about mm-hmm. the genre. It's right. about the character moments. And I think that this show nailed that. And I, I will also use your own words against you, David M. <laughs> you said it blew you away 10 years ago when you first played it. Well, you got to put yourself back there, right? I mean, you can't, you can't judge it just because you've played it before, mm-hmm. that it had less of an impact on you. I think, that, I think that I was mostly able to put myself back in that headspace and remember what it felt like. And maybe that's where we're disagreeing here is, I, you know, obviously it didn't have the same impact as the first time I played it because I knew it was going to happen. But man, it is quite the twist. I really do think it's quite the twist and quite the, you know, pull the rug out from you on rooting for Joel. Right, And uh, although I I will tell you that as we go through this feedback, the weight of the scale for (laughs) Joel is much heavier than the weight of the scale against Joel. So I guess I'm wrong about that. Peter O.H., Loremaster, writes in, Hey guys, initially I was reluctant to get invested in The Last of Us because The Walking Dead had soured me (laughs) on post-apocalyptic zombie shows.
2: 100%.
1: I used to be a Walking Dead fan. But within a few seasons, it had devolved into a terrible show. Instead of trying to tell a good story, the studio focused on increasing profits at all costs, subjecting the viewer to inane writing and tedious, predictable plot gimmicks. On top of that, the show, The Talking Dead, would try to gaslight you into thinking that the (laughs) drivel you had just watched was a work of art. Yeah. So you liked it, Peter. In contrast, The Last of Us is a pleasure to watch. Proper character development, Logical character actions, proper pacing, intelligent use of zombies, I could go on. Like many people, the plotline that engaged me the most was the relationship between Joel and Ellie. When he called her baby girl at the end of episode 8, that really hit me in the feels. Regarding whether Joel has directly substituted Ellie for his daughter in his emotions, I'm going to side with John. That's the right decision, by the way. (laughs) I think David has a well-made and interesting opinion. Joel must have a huge amount of unresolved trauma over the death of his daughter. but. It's been 20 years. I think he has accepted that his daughter's gone. I think he accepts Ellie for who she is, but I think you can watch the show with either mindset and the experience and enjoyment would not be be affected. So, the age-old conundrum. Would you sacrifice the whole world for one person? As a father myself, I can certainly empathize with Joel. Selfish as his actions may seem to be in the wider context. I hope it's not a choice I ever have to make. And then he gives us a dialogue here. Marlene, Joel, you can save Ellie or you can save all the kids. What's it to be? Joel. And then he's got a picture of Michael Jordan saying, fuck them kids.
2: I don't know this meme, actually.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a thing. It goes around.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree about the, the comparison with The Walking Dead. It, at some point when, I forget the name of the showrunner. Um, he was talking about how, like, oh, you know, The Walking Dead can just go on and on. It'll just be for this forever show, and we have no plans to end the story. And I was like, (laughs) what? What is this? And it was like they were trying to set up this huge, uh, unending uh, 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 franchise that would just sort of churn out uh, spinoffs and and just keep sort of rolling. And I think the guy had a little bit of delusions of grandeur. Like he was going to sit on this giant IP, you know, be the the king of this Uh IP mountain, And it really devolved. And I I thought that they could spin off some stuff, but just like they're trying to spin off stuff with Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire, um, it takes very careful consideration and thought. Why are you telling this particular story? What do you want to do with it? What is it going to say? How is it going to add? It's not just like, you know, putting the, the meat into the grinder and just churning out a bunch of sausage. And I think that's what Walking Dead tried to do was just kind of turn the crank and keep out, you know, keep producing this stuff. And and it clearly devolved into just garbage because they weren't telling a story. They were just trying right. to make shows. So
1: Well, I didn't watch The Walking Dead beyond like the pilot, so Oh really? I guess I can't comment too much on that.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: And now I won't because everyone says it's bad.
2: <clears throat> well, yeah, the first few episodes are good. I mean, I would definitely watch the first couple of seasons just because it's um, uh, such a cultural touchstone, you know, and, and Rick and Daryl and, you know, the, the whole No, gang. it's a
1: point of pride now.
2: I can't,
1: I can't <laughs> You gotta, watch gotta it dig now. in. You gotta dig in your head. Yeah. But also, I wouldn't tell someone to watch Game of Thrones now, even though the first four seasons are amazing. So mm. I think that's just my, my personal preference.
2: Sure. Fair enough. Uh, I do agree that, you know, the, the baby girl line uh, really hit hard, uh, and we've got a lot more to talk about, about Joel's choices and, and where he's got to, um, so we'll save it for that. Uh, as to the conundrum, would you sacrifice the whole world for one person, that is a tough one, and, you know, I think we have some feedback about this uh, conundrum as well as a parent, what would you do and what would you be willing to sacrifice to save your child? And that's a, it's a, it's a fine point here. Is Joel really her parent? Or is he just somebody right. who, who loves her uh, intensely? Or thinks he loves her intensely? You know, depending on what side of that, that um, razor's edge you, you fall on. Um, the
1: right side or the wrong side, mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm, side you're on. The
2: dark side, the light side, you know. Um, and I think that's the, bu- the brilliance of this show, is that it, it's slicing so finely these points that we can't all agree, and I think that that is indicative of the quality of this writing, unlike Walking Dead, where they were just throwing, you know, we got to have a, a zombie thing in every episode, and how more gross can we make them, and what, a weird, what more weird things can we do? Um, And it just became, you know, cheap to the point of of boring entertainment.
1: Yeah. Peter O.H. continues with some random observations. Regarding Ellie, Riley, and the Fireflies back at the mall, I do recall in episode one the Fireflies had Ellie chained up. Yep. I thought it a little draconian at the time, but I suppose if you have someone who has recently been bitten but does not seem to be turning, immobilizing them would seem like a prudent choice.
2: Agreed? Yeah.
1: I think that's right.
2: Yep. Logical.
1: Regarding Kathleen, I'm going to nitpick at her being termed a suburban mom. Hmm. In the show, we supposedly see the house she grew up which in, is not which suburban. is right in the heart <laughs> of Kansas City. True. Unless I'm mistaken, that makes her a city mom. I guess those terms have more to do with societal tropes and connotations than neighborhood classification.
2: And, you know, the tone of her voice and the kind of softness or roundness that she speaks in, uh, it, it definitely falls into that stereotype of what you would consider a suburban mom. But yeah, you're right. She's a total city mom. But uh, I think the, the the whole thing with her is that she's a real hard ass and somebody who has caused a major shift within the Kansas City QZ. Because uh, as Perry says, you know, we all loved your brother, but he didn't do shit. You're the one that changed everything. Yeah. So she's a person who can make decisions, make tough decisions, life or death decisions, as we see, and yet our, our societal trope or our stereotype is that she doesn't look like that kind of person. She doesn't sound like that kind of person, and I think that really messed with people's heads. And uh, that's why I respected the choice and really appreciated it, because it right. did go in there and, and blah, 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 you know, scramble up our, our tropes and, and, um, and uh, stereotypes. And they did it wisely, I think. I don't think it was reckless or gratuitous. And we got just enough of Kathleen that we, just to understand and that storyline, uh, and they didn't drag it out over multi-season arcs like they did with certain characters in the walking dead
1: in our defense kansas city to my understanding is a lot like atlanta where there is a very city-like portion but the majority of the city is more suburban looking Mm. so i think the cultures are a little bit more intermingled than a place like manhattan you recently asked how might the island of britain have fared with the outbreak of the virus. I would recommend 28 days later and 28 weeks later, these films directly address that question. In this universe, the virus is man-made, is a man-made rage virus, which causes victims to go berserk and attack uninfected. The original hosts are lab chimpanzees, which is a major plot point, but for me, the infected primates are scarier than infected humans. In episode 6 of The Last of Us, Had Those Baboons Been Infected?, that would almost have been too scary. You know, it's funny because in the game they are infected, although they don't attack you in the game. Okay. I don't know why they added that detail.
2: You know, 28 days later, um, I, I'm, I've seen the, the box title, you know, the, the cover for it, and, stuff, and I've known of it. I've just never seen it. It's just completely escaped my radar entirely. That's so crazy. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. we
1: got to check these out. Anyway, Peter says, Thanks for a great season of coverage. Looking forward to listening to you guys talk about season two, Peter. Thanks, Peter, for writing in. We love hearing from you.
2: And thanks for being a Patreon supporter and a lore master. And a
1: lore master, Yeah,
2: at that. Yeah.
1: Matt E. writes in, I'm not a gamer, but generally familiar with first-person shooter games. I'm curious what The Last of Us gameplay was like. Some scenes, like the sniper in KC, seem like obvious pulls from the game. By contrast, many whole episodes of the show had little action or fighting. Alright, so here's the lowdown. It's not actually a first-person shooter. It's a third-person shooter. You see the back of Joel. You see him as a figure. He's not uh, looking down the scope. And uh, basically, your emphasis is more on looting and conserving your ammo and you know, trying to sneak past groups of enemies rather than you know jumping in headfirst. I mean, if you go on easy, then yes, you could just go in headfirst, but you do want to be more sneaky, you want to conserve your supplies, and you want to be very good with looting. It, it rewards you for looting, it gives you new skill trees, it gives you new power-ups, you can upgrade your weapons. It's a, it's a very cool game, and what I like about it is when you are just walking to a new location, they have a lot of uh, roadside chat with Joel and Ellie, and that's a lot of where you get that character development and relationship development. It just feels super easy.
2: It's interesting because when you were first trying to explain it to me, I didn't understand because I was thinking, you know, first person shooter or what are those top down strategy games or something. I didn't understand
1: RTS, yeah,
2: yeah, what this was. And this is like, is this just like a whole bunch of cutscenes or or what is this? And it's a whole different. I think this genre of video game arose after I stopped playing. And uh-huh. I think yeah, this
1: was really like, I would say you know 2010ish. This started to pop up more.
2: Uh huh. Um, I think the last game was a uh, that I played that was kind of on a. Souped up PC was one of the Halo games where you could drive around in a buggy and stuff like that.
1: Oh, we love Halo.
2: Yeah. So that was about the last time I played seriously a, a video game where I was like engrossed and tried to, you know, drive, get through the levels and stuff like that. So that was a long time ago.
1: Now, Matt, if you want more about the game, check out The Lorehounds Play because Brendan and I are going to be doing a two part review of it. We already recorded part one. So check that out. It'll be on our Firehose feed. And thanks for writing in.
2: All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: And we're back. Drunkill from Melbourne, Australia says. Gets another one. Hi, guys. Oh, yeah, he's sneaking in.
2: Yep. Smuggled.
1: Hi, guys. Something that I noticed way back in episode one and which was discussed in various places online was Joel's watch when Sarah is killed. Yep. Is it possible instead of wounding Joel's wrist, the bullet ricocheted off the newly repaired watch, which breaks again in that scene? In a way, Sarah could have inadvertently brought down her own downfall. Of course, it was a burst of gunfire, but it was a theory floating around after the first episode. And we get the watch front and center again when Joel embraces Ellie at the end of episode eight, My Sweet Baby Girl. Just a thought. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. So my thought is Joel would not keep that watch on if that's what he believed. Mm -hmm. I think that what I got out of it was that watch would have hit that bullet would have hit Joel without the watch. So I think that Sarah saved Joel. I don't think that the the bullet necessarily killed sarah especially because i i you know his watch is on the outside of his grip on sarah right mm-hmm. so i don't think that it could have i mean maybe it could have i don't know how ballistics work but yeah I, I don't think so that's what i'm gonna rule on this
2: i would think from a regardless of the number of rounds fired uh, from the soldier that particular high velocity round is designed to be a little bit unstable so that it sort of tumbles around once it starts to hit stuff. Um, And I think the damage to the watch would have been catastrophic to the point that the watch would have been unwearable if it had actually been hit by a 5.56 round uh, at that close range. So I I can't go with that. Um, And, you know, I think it's simple enough just to, to accept the fact that Joel was holding her, and she was between him and the soldier. So when the soldier, soldier shot, like, you know, did he try to turn away or whatever? I mean, it was a, it was a no-win scenario, right? Once, once yeah. that soldier decided to yeah. pull the trigger, I don't think there was much that he could have done. Even if he'd got shot in from the back, you know, a round still could have gone through if it, if it hadn't glanced off a bone or something like that. Or even if it did glance off a bone, it still could have come out and... and lodged into her in some way, you know, so right. I think it's, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think there's any cheese down that tunnel. I think it's, you know, that that's it. He shot, you know, and they, and she died. So. Yeah. Now I will throw out here part of my case against Joel. Well, not my case against Joel, but, but, but part save save of my, for the jury, uh, part of the illumination of Joel, uh, and part of these little totems these little semiotic, you know, symbols that they've uh, given us in the in the show, Ellie's switchblade and Joel's uh, watch. Right, we see the watch and the switchblade constantly throughout the show. We see little glimpses of it. There was a scene where they're sleeping before they get ambushed by Sam and Henry, and he's the first time he's really laughing at their jokes, and. We see the watch just right underneath his face, you know, constantly throughout it. uh, We get glimpses of it. Same with the knife. And part of what, for my interpretation of Joel is, and part of my interpretation of this watch is, is that Joel is a man stuck in time because the watch stopped, it broke at the, the moment of Sarah's death. So, yes, he carries the watch as a memory, as a memento, as the last thing he has of his daughter. But that could have been a scrap of clothing, a lock of hair, a photograph, uh, a little charm that she had. But here it's, and yeah, granted, she repaired the watch for him, and that was a big part of the story that we got with her. But this sort of extra symbol, what is a watch? It's time. What happened to this watch? It stopped. When did it stop? At the time of her death. You can, you could interpret this as a symbol of Joel's being a man who's emotionally stuck in time, that he's never progressed beyond that moment of the death of Sarah, Um, you know, or at least a fundamental part of him is stuck in that. So there you go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you about him getting stuck for a while. I think where I disagree with you is I think he started to change again and started to develop again. When he started to love Ellie. Sure. When he started to really open his heart to Ellie. Right. Loremanster Nancy M. sent us a Patreon message. Hi, David and John. Hi, Nancy. The CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, recently ran a story on its news app about an incident that happened during the filming of The Last of Us in Calgary. The story is too funny for words since it is the episode with the sniper. (laughs) I thought your listeners might be interested. I'm not sure if the link will work, so I'm copying the text for you. Here's the text she sent. Armed Alberta teen caused lockdown on the set of HBO's The Last of Us. The cast and crew of HBO's The Last of Us got only one take of a critical scene after production was shut down last June in Old Alta. When a crew member spotted a rifle pointed at the film set from a second story window, a Calgary judge was told. On June 1st, 2022, a costume assistant alerted the production's head of security after noticing an armed man in an apartment building pointing what looked to be a real assault rifle but turned out to be an airsoft gun. Reese Wadden, then 18, testified that he was simply using the scope of a firearm to get a better look at the action on set below his second floor apartment. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's pretty hilarious dude get a pair of binoculars <laughs> I guess uh, we, we snipped the article because it was so long but I think you know we could either link it or you could google for this that apparently um, it cost the set because they had to go into lockdown on the set they had to hustle all the actors away basically cancelled shooting for you know the, the, the production for that day so they like lost a ton of money and time and this kid was just trying to like watch what was going on using the scope on his rifle, So Yeah,
1: that was an expensive set, too, because they had yes. to build that from scratch because they really wanted to have that exact, you know, scene from mm-hmm. the video game and they right. didn't want to just sort of phone it in. They really rebuilt the scene from the video game. And so, yeah, he cost them a ton of money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. I mean, but not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now for my feedback for your wrap up episode. When the screen went to black on Sunday, my first reaction was shock. I'm not a game player, so I had no idea Marlene had to kill Ellie to attempt a cure for humanity. And there's no possibility this was a certainty. How could it be? This was no more than an experiment with their hypothesis being that the key to the vaccine or treatment was inside Ellie's brain. Even if those monkeys left behind at the school campus had been experimented on, that's no guarantee the results translate from ape to human. True. Joel was justified in doing what he needed to do to save Ellie, damn the body count. This, is, this should be in the case for Joel Miller, but we're going to leave it here anyway. And then he was justified in making up what happened to Ellie to keep her safe going forward. My second reaction, when I had a chance to breathe again, is that what a great cliffhanger the showrunners left us with. No question Ellie sees through Joel's lie, but what will she do about it? Not being a game player, that question is going to torment me until season two drops.
2: Well, I think the, the showrunners are uh, very happy that they've got you on the hook like this because that's exactly what they wanted and what HBO wants as well is a right. eager viewer ready to roll on for uh, season two uh, along with the rest of us. So, absolutely.
1: And what a great cliffhanger of not will she survive, mm-hmm. but how does she feel about what just happened? Right. How is she going to react to this?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's so many questions. and what's going to happen when they get to Jackson and what's going to happen between Joel and his brother. And, um, uh, I forget, uh, I keep forgetting, uh, uh, Tommy's Maria. wife's name, Maria. And how is she going to react to this stuff? Cause there's a big old smelly lie right in the middle of all of this. And it's, n- it's going to fester and it's going to cause problems. And Joel's going to be acting weird and he's going to be acting different. And that's going to be noticed. I mean, like, there's, all kind, there's a huge onion here that's just going to be uh, uh, driving a whole bunch of dramatic action, and I have no idea where they're going for it, but I'm with you, Nancy M. I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, Give it to me now.
1: As far as your arguments for Joel Miller, I'll save my thoughts for the jury later in the podcast.
2: But thanks for sending us that article. That's, uh, that was a great little piece of trivia. Absolutely. All
1: right, I think we're ready for the case against Joel Miller. Matt W. writes in, John and David, thanks for your coverage. Been following you all through the Rings of Power and Andor. Enjoy it quite a bit on my commute.
2: We got an OG fan here. Thanks, Matt.
1: Oh, yeah. Two comments for your finale episode. I think David's take that Joel is insane is not as out there as it seems at first
2: i have one supporter among the many (laughs) congratulations
1: the conversations earlier in the episode leading up to slash after the giraffe strike me as normal awkward attempts to cheer up a traumatized adolescent but i had similar thoughts about mental illness much later in the episode just before during after the hospital massacre The idea that Joel snapped after his initial conversation with Marlene in the hospital bed and is now diagnosable seems supportable in the text. It's the way he is suddenly overeager to talk about Sarah, something about the way he shepherds Ellie the final few miles, something in the way Pedro plays that's just a little spooky. As David said, he's not relating to Ellie as Ellie. I also see... I also see it in how he goes beyond taking out the armed guards, but also headshots the doctor and goes back to kill a wounded Marlene. This isn't about doing what needs to be done to save Ellie in an emergency. It's about saving Ellie for him and him alone permanently as a replacement Sarah, because his mind cannot handle having the space that has now been refilled be empty again. And that relationship between Ellie and Joel seems psychically broken now because of Joel's mental state. At least for now, people can pop in and out of healthy. Not necessarily because of Joel's lie alone. I don't think this is or will be a necessarily long-term issue for Joel, though it'd certainly be interesting to explore in season two. But it seems to me that what he's done to get to this point has broken him and his motivations are not because of normal fatherly instinct alone, but because of mental illness rooted in an unhealthy need to keep Ellie as his own. He couldn't save Sarah, which broke him, but saving Ellie in this way has broken him all over again. What do you think, David? You've got your supporter.
2: Yeah, this is uh, um, a pretty well, uh, I think, thought out, supportive argument to what I was trying to point out, was that, yeah, he. L- I'm not saying that he doesn't love Ellie. But the, the fear and brokenness from losing Sarah is so overriding that he, what he does is monstrous. It's not that he kneecapped the doctor. Okay, it's one thing to shoot, uh, say, the armed guards in the hallway, right? Right. As he's going through, and they're, they're active threats against him, so he's taking them out. There's a guard that he goes in and finishes off with, with Ellie's switchblade, right, who is clearly going to die anyway, but does he, he goes ahead and murders that guy. And then when he goes into the doctor, he doesn't wound the doctor, he doesn't herd the doctor up against the wall, he shoots him in the head. Why? So that there is never a chance that anyone from the Fireflies ever can come for Ellie ever again. And then when he goes to Marlene. And she's like, you know, let me live, you know, uh, you know don't kill me, he says, like, you, you'll just keep coming for her. Boom. Right? So he is going to an extreme. So let's separate out slightly whether he relates to Ellie as Ellie or as a proxy for Sarah. Okay, we can just set that argument aside. The going through and murdering the entire Firefly organization, who are... Okay, granted, they're a terror, you know, uh, uh, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter, um, you know, they're, they're trying to do something positive, they may have misguided uh, aspirations, they may not be uh, uh, effectively led, fine, but he goes through and he, he completely decapitates this organization and kills a medical doctor, right? A very important resource in a post-apocalyptic thing to solely to stop them ever coming after Ellie again. That is
1: over and above, in my opinion. But let me ask you something. Is he wrong? Is he wrong that they will keep coming after her as long as that doctor is alive?
2: So, yes, because he's doing something that was Ellie expressly indicated that she might have a different decision. And he has- No, 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 I'm not
1: asking you if it was morally right. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you, is he wrong factually that if he doesn't- kill the doctor and Marlene, that they will keep coming after Ellie?
2: Uh, Probably they would, would you know, to, to what extent they would try to search for him? Uh, they probably would try to look for her. Now, would they come with armed guards and try to, you know, take by force? Or would they approach with diplomacy and conversation? I, I don't know. But would they- I don't
1: think that we've seen anything with the Fireflies that suggests diplomacy. I think that they have been extremely violent from the beginning.
2: Extremely violent? But I mean, this whole this is an extremely violent world, though, so... Well, they're bombing
1: civilians, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, in the first episode, they bombed civilians. Right. I just... I don't buy it. I don't buy it, David. I think that, uh, you know, we can talk about the morality of Joel's actions, and I won't defend Joel Holy. I think he, he is sort of the villain in the end. I know I got flack for saying that, but I think he's the villain in the end. But... Well, I, I think that's think what the
2: show pushes you to believe. You're, you're, I mean, that's yeah. what you said is, is like, oh, my God, at the end of the game, you realize that, you know, you, you're, your motives aren't pure. You're not saving the world.
1: <laughs> right. You're, but you're so not the hero. This is, this is why I take issue with the insanity thing is that I'm not saying Joel did the right thing. I'm saying Joel was fully aware of what he was doing. Joel thought this out. Okay. Joel thought in his head, if I don't kill these people, they will come after Ellie. Therefore, I will kill these people.
2: But I and what I'm saying is that 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 is insanity, right? That is that is um,
1: I don't I think it's incredibly cruel. I think it's incredibly, you know, chauvinistic, but I don't think it's insanity. I think it's just a, a person who is making poor moral decisions.
2: <laughs> Here's the other clue that I take away from the show is that. When he's going through the hospital, they give us the sound cue that Joel is disassociated from the violence that he's committing. He is in this sort of fugue state where he's acting purely on honed you know, killer instinct. He is out of touch with his humanity. He is a killing machine. And, you know, when and and interestingly enough, right, the the cannibal community, you know, gave us that first glimpse of the other side. Now, regardless of, you know, David's morality, the fact that they're like, "Oh, there was some crazy man who killed one of our people." You know, who's the monster here? You or you or them? Like, who what's your point of view? And from my show-watching point of view, watching Joel murder an entire hospital full of fireflies who aren't, you know, who aren't angels and who aren't devils, that to me seems monstrous.
1: Oh, I certainly think he's monstrous, I guess. I guess I don't think we're going to agree about this, David, but I think that we just disagree about how aware Joel was. I mean, part of it is, you know, when I played the game, that's not what the audio is in the game. You're fully aware of your actions. You sure, yeah, through, yeah. You can shoot through, you can shoot everybody. Right. You're, the music is, I think, a guitar track. It's like the theme of The Last of Us. It's not this, you know this fugue state thing, like you're saying. And right. even in the show, they said they started with an action track. So I don't know if that's what they were going for. I think that they just, what they said in the official podcast was they were just trying to make it sad. You know, they weren't trying mm. to make it an action scene. They were trying to make sure it was a somber scene. Okay. So I don't, I don't think, I think that your reading of it is reasonable, but I don't think it's correct.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going on. We've got plenty more right. to, to, to suss out.
1: Alright, Matt continues, also as a father who has been present for the birth of his two children, not exactly an MD I know, I just found the labor and delivery season at the beginning of the finale to be pretty believable and just devastating. I don't know where David had to take a beat, but I had to pause after that. When our first kid was born, it was a prolonged labor at the hospital, lasting about 36 hours. Ooh, that's tough. When our daughter was born, our wife refused to acknowledge that she was in labor because she didn't want to waste the provider's time this go-around. When we finally got into the car, she was so far alone that she could not sit down in her seat properly, and we drove with her on her hands and knees in the back seat. When we arrived, we were met in the parking lot by our providers, who were made aware of how late we thought the hour was. When my wife made it out of the car, she could not make it into the building. And our provider laid out a sterile blanket and caught the baby as my wife was on her hands and knees in front of, in the front steps of the building. You just catch a slippery baby. yeah. Obviously, every pregnancy is different, but the idea that a woman could be hobbling along, running for her life in the final minutes of labor and give birth while being attacked doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. Moms are amazing. Thanks again, Matt W.
2: Thanks, Matt. That's a harrowing story. I am glad. Uh, and uh, wish the best for your family. And I'm glad yeah. that you had a, a good uh, pro league catcher there who was able to. It seems like you can
1: look <laughs> back on it and laugh at it. And so I think yes. that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and according to Kathy, too, uh, our, our uh, medical expert, a friend in Ireland. Um, yeah, it seems like these kinds of things could potentially happen. So it's not that far out of the realm of possibility for uh, how Ellie's birth occurred.
1: Well, David, we've just presented the case against Joel Miller, and we got probably an hour and a half worth of emails about the case for Joel Miller, (laughs) because everybody likes murder who's in our listener base, apparently. That's right. Um, So I think that what we need to do here is we need to split off this podcast. You're going to have to come back to hear the case for Joel Miller. Uh, We'll try to get that out in about a week. And we will also have Mrs. Lorehound on the podcast to talk with me about spoilers for season two and part two of the game. So that'll be a lot of fun. But for now, we're going to wrap this up and we will be back next week with the case for Joel Miller. But we want to shout out the people who wrote in first so that you know that we got your email and that it's coming in your own special episode.
2: That's right. So we got uh, Dove71, Sean, DM, Nick C., Melania from Alberta, Susan from Vermont, Jeannie from Texas, John J, Ken, Sergeant Drano, and Eric S. And Alicia, uh, we're going to put you guys all in your one episode because you didn't send us short emails. (laughs) You send us really long emails. And every single email, while being pro-Joel, has its own nuanced takes to the degree that we don't want to... Not have your voice heard and your point taken because you guys aren't arguing all the same thing. You're actually arguing variations of things, and we want to make sure that we get to all of those. So we're going to wrap all those up and and like John said, uh, give you guys your own podcast.
1: What an exciting time! You get your own special podcast and a spoiler cast at the end, so that'll be a lot of fun.
2: Uh, our our listeners are are amazing. They're just really great, and I, the the quality of these replies is super. It's not just people throwing Molotovs at us. But people are actually considering and thinking through their arguments. So it's really cool.
1: Absolutely. So thanks for writing in. We'll get to those next week. For now, let's do our outro.
2: All right. uh, Patreon shout out. Um, Thank you to everyone who is a Patreon subscriber. You guys all, your support makes this possible because there are actual costs involved. So thank you to everyone. We have a Top tier, our lore masters, and we like to give those people a special shout out. John, talking about like long outros or long podcasts, we now have 17 lore masters. Wow. Um, we've got Smartian Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., SC, Peter OH. Tina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Dork of the Ninjas, Dove 71 just upgraded from Lorefine, and our newest lore master today. Just before we jumped on the mics, we've got Brian8063. Thank you all so very much. Thank you all to all our patrons. Um, the Patreon, if you want to support us, if you're considering, you know, do what works for you. You know, we've we've all got our our economic realities. Um the ad-supported podcasts, ad podcasts are great, but the Patreon is what really helps us uh, to get by month to month. So thank you all very much. John, you want to talk a little bit about what we've got for the rest of our March Madness?
1: Boy, oh boy, are we still going. We put out a lot of podcasts already, and we've got more. If you want more Last of Us, other than the feedback bonus episode, we have the Lorehounds play The Last of Us Part 1 coming out next week. That's with uh, me and Brandon the Bard. We're going to be talking about the game. We're going to be recapping it. We're going to be talking about the gameplay, talking about differences with the show. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Then we have The Mandalorian Season 3 going every week, an episode coming out this week and next week. There was a song in the last episode you might be interested in.
2: (laughs) Somebody even wrote a a chat GPT song. I know. I saw
1: that. I don't (laughs) think I'm talented enough to sing. One, two, three, four by Feist, but it's to that, and I think that would be.
2: That's pretty fun. awesome.
1: Ted Lasso season three is going. We're doing some light podcasts on it. We're just yeah. doing our favorite moments. We're talking about broader themes. Lunchtime, and we are, we are back on the pitch the Earthsea cycle has finally arrived in your feed. Marilyn Arpukila is with us and we're talking about Ged and his adventures and his dragons and everything else about him. And he's he's just, he's just questing all over the place. So we're going to be with that the whole time. Marilyn's on the Discord, so you can chat with her there. And I hope you will join us for it. And if you want more reading, Silmarillion Stories is coming out very soon. It is already out for the patrons, so if you want early access, head to our Patreon. Uh, We're covering Of the Coming of Elves and the Captivity of Milkor. What a title.
2: Well, John, I'm exhausted. (laughs) Between all these emails and all this podcasting content that we've produced for uh, March, uh, it's been a crazy month, but we're we're doing all right. We're doing pretty good. We're surviving.
1: We're getting through it. Yeah, we are. The people seem to like it.
2: I think so. And so thank you all again very much, we appreciate it and uh, we will catch you on the Wrap Up Wrap Up Podcast in about a week.
1: The Lorehounds Podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities.
0: A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning.